Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, JF and I are discussing an idea that's almost too big to talk about, which is maybe why we haven't talked about it very directly on this show, even though it informs just about everything we say and think. It's the idea of radical mystery, the idea that the unknown, the hidden, the obscure does not represent a flaw in our knowledge, but is rather a positive and unexpungible quality of things and events. But if radical mystery is not defined merely by a lack of qualities, what then are the qualities that define it? Stay tuned to find out. We talk about our favorite kinds of tea, a guy I know who almost died in a cave, JF's terrifying experience with a malevolent radiator, my own experience with an eldritch imaginal flute, and lots more. This episode was prompted by a conversation I had with the editor of a forthcoming collection of musicological essays, one of which is my own The Devil's On Your Side, on the shady business of hermeneutics, an earlier draft of which you can find on our Patreon. This exchange with my editor prompted me in turn to write another essay, Radical Mystery, a preliminary account, which is also on our Patreon. You know, there might be a pattern here. If you're thinking to yourself, geez, it sounds like I'll need to sign up to the Weird Studies Patreon to get the full story here, keep following that train of thought. These days, the free flagship show, you know, like this one, is but the iceberg-like protuberance of a discourse playing out on the Patreon, on the fan discord, on the subreddit, and, increasingly, in live events. As a matter of fact, I have two such events to announce. First, there is J.F.'s new course, Groundwork for a Philosophy of Magic, Truth, Modernity, and the Reality of Fantasy, which starts on May 3rd. Go to Neuro Learning for more information. We'll have a link handy in the show notes. The other event is the launch of Black Corvid IPA, a collaboration between ourselves and Illuminated Brewworks. Having a signature brand of Weird Studies beer is possibly the coolest thing that has ever happened to me in my life, with the possible exception of the birth of my children. At the very least, it's something I am looking forward to putting in my university-mandated faculty annual report. We're going to host a live Weird Studies event in Chicago on May 23rd at the Illuminated Brewworks headquarters. Keep watching this space for more details as we get closer to the date. One thing I can promise is that this is going to be fun. Brian Buckman, IBW brewmaster and friend of the podcast, is a Willy Wonka-like mad genius of brewing, and the event will be an opportunity to see JF and me do a live show and a meet-up in real life with members of our weird little community. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope to see some of you there. Okay, on with the show.
my favorite tea right now is a combination of Yorkshire Gold and Lapsang Souchong. You put them both together. Oh, it's nice. Lapsang Souchong. Smoky. Mm. I keep that for special occasions. Smoky, but with a, a solid base of yes. plain Assam tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of the Lapsang Souchong. I haven't bought any, you know, a long, a long time. I'm Yorkshire Gold all day, every day. Maybe they could sponsor our show. <laughs> That'd be great. Get some of that Yorkshire tea money. Mark Pilkington agrees. Oh, yes, that's right. He knows his tea. But the gold, he says he saves the gold for special occasions. Usually just gets the regular Yorkshire because Yorkshire gold is uh, like $1.50 like more expensive. I'm good for it <laughs> with all this Patreon money. <laughs> that's what I'm spending my Patreon money on. This is what you make possible. A better line of teas. So Yorkshire tea, yeah. Um, there's a you know, builder's tea that's the you know, will self wrote a really good essay on tea that I read a long time ago. And that's what convinced me that I could get off coffee and get into tea and it'd be just as I could find some good, strong teas that would, um, you know, well, let me tell you, there was a week there a couple of weeks ago when my wife was out of town for the whole week. And so I was just on my own and I make coffee for the first couple of days and realize, you know what, actually my favorite morning beverage is chai. Mm. Not the oversweetened stuff that you get at coffee shops, which is made with sort of a chai-flavored syrup. But like, uh, if you make chai, like you buy some unsweetened chai masala spice powder, and you've got some tea bags, some sugar, and some milk, then that's kind of what you need. You boil water with tea bags and the, and the spice mix, and you boil the fuck out of it for like a good four minutes or so, which if you were making a cup of tea would make the tea undrinkably bitter because when you're making tea, you want, you don't want to leach all the bitter tannins out of the leaf. Right. But when you're making chai, you boil them shits. And that also extracts a lot of caffeine. And my understanding is a builder's tea works the same way. You just stew the tea for a long time, but then you add tons of milk and sugar at the back end. And that's what you do in making chai. And it's absolutely delicious. And it is quite as caffeinated as coffee. Yeah, yeah. So it's, that's actually my favorite, but Helen doesn't like it as much as I do. So I drink coffee normally. One of my favorite teas is called Gyokuro. Have you heard of this tea? It's a Japanese green tea. Sure. Very delicate, very hard to brew. You know, you really have to follow the protocol or else it gets really bitter. But if you do it properly, it is unbelievably good. But it packs, I think, 300 milligrams of caffeine per cup oh. uh, as compared to 100 milligrams in a cup of coffee. So without knowing that, I bought Gyokuro and I was like steeping it and like infusion after infusion. And all of a sudden I started to feel like I was having a panic attack. And I realized I just consumed about 1200 milligrams of caffeine. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh my God. What a nightmare. So you gotta be careful with the Gyokuro, but it's, it's fantastic. We've talked about doing a show on tea, the mystery of tea. Yeah, it's but true. I think it, it'll have awesome. to wait. Yeah. That day is not today. No, but we are talking about a mystery of sorts. In fact, we're talking about the mystery of mysteries, the mystery of all yes. mysteries, the right. radical one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I've hit the ball in your court and you... And I whiffed. And you just watch it. It will go right by you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just... It's, it's bringing back youth softball. <laughs> watching, the, watching the ball go whizzing over my head. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big topic. I'm frankly intimidated to, to talk about it. And I'm glad that we're trying to 
at least make the transition to talking about it because otherwise I would have just been talking about tea, yeah, <laughs> beard balm or some shit for the rest of the morning, just yeah. avoiding talking about this difficult question. Okay, let me just set the table then. Our topic is radical mystery, and I had the idea of doing a show on this, but only because Phil wrote an essay on the Patreon called Radical Mystery, a Preliminary Count. Uh, oops, I've just realized you have a, a typo in your title on the Patreon. Oh, I do? Fuck. We can take that out of the uh, recording. You wrote a preliminary account. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I didn't notice till now. I've, oh, I've read okay. it. Okay, I'm, I'm going to fix that. Yeah. This is very exciting, I'm sure, for <laughs> our listeners. Live editing. Um. Oh, look at that shit. No, uh, It looks like a real word, though. At least there's that. It looks like it means something, a preliminary, preliminary account. I, I, yeah, but it doesn't. <laughs> now it means something. Now it says preliminary. Okay. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Other than that, it's a fantastic essay. It's a chance for us to discuss one of those centerpieces of the Weird Studies uh, banquet that we haven't really gone into Direct, we haven't hit it. We've hit it obliquely, but we haven't hit it directly, which is the idea of radical mystery. Because there's a difference between the weird and, and mystery. There's a reason why the two words can be retained. You can't just collapse one into the other. So why don't you tell us why you wrote this and where it came from? Well, the idea of writing it was seeded by an experience that I've been having seeing an article through the editing process. So when you're an academic, you publish academic articles and books, and this is an article that is going to appear, at least I believe it is going to appear, in an edited collection from a major academic press. I'm going to keep the details out of it for now, just because we're still kind of in the middle of the journey here. Right. But, um, you know, what happens when you're seeing something through the review process, it's sent to whoever is reading it, you get the comments back, usually in the form of a track changes, like a Microsoft Word track changes edit. Where, you know, mistakes that you've made, typos and poor formatting or whatever, all of that is fixed. But also, you know, questions of cogency and logic and what did you mean by this and so on. And in one of those exchanges, this is right at the end of the essay. And if you're on Patreon, you can actually read an early draft of this essay because I put it up there. It's called The Devil's on Your Side on the Shady Business of Hermeneutics. And... Towards the end, I'm making an argument about why would musicologists who are not <laughs> Patreon subscribers for the Weird Studies podcast, like people who are not that interested in the kind of stuff we talk about on that show, yeah, why would they be interested in the ideas that I have on offer in this essay? Because I'm sort of suggesting, you know, music interpretation or really interpretation of any kind of text is an unavoidably daemonic activity. Mm -hmm. You are encountering a realm of incorporeal intelligences. Well, at the very least, you're implying something very strange about reality. Like when you're making an argument that, you know, you're interpreting Moby Dick, like I just read a, a, an essay last night saying that Moby Dick is, um, what it's really about is Melville's reservations and confrontation of the transcendental movement, the Concord movement or whatever. And his whole career can be interpreted as that. 
So what is the claim being made here? Was it that Melville was like, I need to fight transcendentalism and I must do it with novels? Is it that? No, but that's the argument you're making, but you're claiming something about your ability to interpret that goes underneath the surface level reality to get at some more fundamental reality. Precisely. And there's rarely any effort made to substantiate that type of claim. Like when, when, yeah, like Freud and, you know, like- Marxism, all these. There's a radical aspect of the claim that almost never goes really talked about, which is like, what's your warrant for saying that there's any deeper meaning at all? And this is exactly the question that school of music students, like somebody who's like a bassoonist or something, who's not that into musicology, but they have to take a music history class. And they see you up there talking about how latent in the structure of this one Beethoven sonata, there's this something that might tell us something about, oh, fuck, I don't know, the age of enlightenment or whatever. Like, that's the kind of stuff that we say. And, you know, the question is always going to be, like, is that something that's really there in the music, or did you just make it up? You know, are you just reading the tea leaves? Are you just seeing faces and clouds, seeing what you want to see, and then projecting that onto the work? This essay is arguing that, most of our answers to that question are lame. They're lame and ultimately incoherent. And when they fall apart, we're left with a kind of a not knowing. I mean, some of these structures that you find in analysis are truly uncanny. And if the composer or author didn't intend for them to be there, it sure as hell feels like somebody intended them to be there. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff I was trying to get people to think about. And towards the end, I'm like, Okay, so the reason why it might be fruitful for us to flirt with a, you know, a viewpoint that, to put it mildly, is a minority viewpoint in academia, and I should say, by the way, that my editor is a gentleman of the old school. He could not have been more encouraging of my weird shit at every stage of the way, and so the absolute last thing. I want to do in bringing up this issue is to pose as if I'm some edgy outsider radical and these squares just don't get it, man. Like I hate that shit anyway. And it would be grotesquely inapposite to use that kind of framing narrative in this case. So understand this is a matter of two worlds talking to each other. My editor is not about the weird that at least so far as I know, he's not about the kind of things we talk about on the show, but he's, engaged in a good faith exercise of trying to understand what one of his contributors is bringing to the table. We're trying to communicate across different worldviews, right? And so what I wrote was, in this essay, I've tried to weird musicology a little. If nothing else, this exercise might make our interpretive practices feel a little more exciting, even transgressive, if that sort of thing still appeals to you. But I would suggest that the best reason to weird musicology is to honor the dull, commonplace things we do all the time. In defamiliarizing the objects of our routine perceptions, art restores the world to us in all its vividness. The perspectives afforded by esoteric studies allow us to do the same for disciplines and interpretive practices that can come to seem a little overfamiliar in the rounds of everyday professional life. And my editor wrote, you say that weirding involves finding unusual aspects of the usual, But here you seem to say that involves recognizing things for what they are, a cleansing return to nature by undoing the processes of civilization. That's a well-articulated, logical 
objection, or not even an objection, but a request for clarity. And I realized in that moment, there's like, the thing that's missing here is the idea of radical mystery. Right. An idea that is so pervasive and so basic to everything we talk about that we seldom talk about it as it were, full frontal. We seldom really approach it directly, but we will simply invoke it at various points in the conversation. And it's the idea that reality is inherently mysterious, that there's a mystery to existence that is not merely contingent. It's not just like a flaw in our understanding that will be remedied at some future date. The idea is that it's not a lack. It's not an absence of something. It is a positive presence of something. There is a mystery in all things that is not just we don't know yet. It's a quality of things that means you will never know fully. Exactly. There's a way that reality, even as it manifests to us, is always withdrawing, which is a slightly Heideggerian way of putting it. I like to think of it in somewhat Zen terms, because that's the tradition that I spend a lot of time in. But the very expression, radical mystery, I got from you. Right. And I know that your commitments here are not from the Zen tradition. It's coming from somewhere else. I would say that in order to answer my editor's objection, when, you know, when I, what I wrote to him was basically, yeah, there's this idea of radical mystery that underlies everything, where it's not about a cleansing return to nature. It's not about like, you know, visiting a sacred grove, undoing the processes of civilization and bathing in some kind of redemptive primitivism. It isn't that at all. No. Because you don't have to go to a special place or engage in some special activity to encounter this mystery. This mystery is always already there. We're the ones who are contriving to forget it. Yeah. So there's nothing special about it at all. It's just kind of the way things are. And yet, because we contrive to forget it, we have always to find our way back to it. And that, to me, is the statement of radical mystery. Yes, totally. That's beautifully said. Maybe it'd be helpful to bring a distinction. I made this distinction in uh, a piece called Reality's Analog, a distinction between ontological and epistemological or epistemic strangeness. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Yeah, epistemic strangeness is a strangeness for us. So, for instance, um, let's take UFOs as a phenomenon. So, people see lights in the sky, and then you'll have the nuts and bolts people. And the nuts and bolts people are people who believe that the mystery of UFOs is an epistemological mystery. The problem is that we don't have enough information, but they assume that there is some kind of, yet, there's some kind of explanation which, if we had it, would dispel the strangeness. There's nothing essentially weird about Martians coming to Earth and flying saucers. Sure, it's weird because we've never seen it, but it's perfectly in keeping with our ideas about how the universe works. I mean, other than the fact that we don't know how they would travel across uh, star systems and whatever. As Arthur C. Clarke put it, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So that's a view that is based in this idea that the universe is rational and some things may seem anomalous and strange, but that's because we don't have enough information. If we had that information, these things would become naturalized, would be absorbed into the naturalist system that we employ to interpret the world. Then there's the idea of ontological strangeness, which is what uniquely I would call the weird. 
And that's the idea that something is strange in and of itself. And that's kind of what John Keel, that's the conclusion he comes to with regard to UFOs. For John Keel, the UFO phenomenon is not explainable. It is completely, it's inherently weird. It's inherently yeah. contradictory, paradoxical, tricksterish. that we'll never get to the bottom of it. And in fact, our rationalistic belief that if we just had more information, if I just go to one more investigation, I'll finally figure it out. That's exactly how the phenomenon lures you into itself and basically yeah. leads you into madness. So yep. the question is, do we live in an epistemically strange universe or an ontologically strange universe? And I think, right. actually think that the idea of radical mystery is kind of a compromise between those two. Hmm. Radical mystery for me doesn't connote an ontologically weird universe in the sense of a universe that is without rhyme or reason, a universe that is hyper chaotic, that is indifferent to reason or morality or human endeavor. Mystery is a little bit more welcoming of the human, I think, as a concept. This is something I got from uh, Gabriel Marcel, who was a, a French existentialist philosopher. Very hard to read, but really, really worth reading. Not hard to read because he's technical, hard to read because he's not a great writer, uh, but he still wrote some really important books. And he was a contemporary of Sartre and, you know, in, in France there in the mid-20th century. And he wrote a book called Being and Having, where he makes a very clear distinction between problems and mysteries. When we talk about things in terms of ontological or epistemic weirdness, I think we're approaching things as problems. How do we explain the UFO? John Keel's answer, you will not explain the UFO. It's an insoluble yeah. problem. It's an, an eternal perennial problem. But mystery has a, a personal dimension to it. And I found that the way Marcel frames it, this book, Being and Having, is basically his journals. So it's really easy to read compared to some of his other works. Uh, on page 117 of Being and Having, in this edition anyways, he writes, In fact, it seems very likely that there is this essential difference between a problem and a mystery. A problem is something which I meet, which I find complete before me, but which I can thereby lay siege to and reduce. But a mystery is something in which I am myself involved, and it can therefore only be thought of as a sphere where the distinction between what is in me and what is before me loses its meaning and its initial validity. A genuine problem is subject to an appropriate technique by the exercise of which it is defined, whereas a mystery, by definition, transcends every conceivable technique. It is, no doubt, always possible, logically and psychologically, to degrade a mystery so as to turn it into a problem. But this is a fundamentally vicious proceeding whose springs might perhaps be discovered in a kind of corruption of the intelligence. And as an example of that, I would say, I've listened to a few transhumanist lectures on death, and these guys who present death as though it were just a technical problem um, that we can solve. And to me, it's, it's something disingenuous about that discourse, because it almost allows one to ignore the more fundamental mystery of death, which we call a mystery because it involves us. So radical mystery is radical, not only because it goes to the root of phenomena, of observable phenomena, but it also goes to the root of ourselves. We're caught up in it. We're not outside of it looking, oh, this is a weird world but then cordoning ourselves off as though we weren't weird ourselves. It includes us. And so we're always engaged and involved in mystery in a way that makes it, I think, ultimately, and this is a bit of a leap, but irreducibly moral. It always has to do with how should I respond? You know, when Moses sees the burning bush, 
he doesn't know how to respond. And then the voice tells him, you know, take off your sandals for you stand on holy ground. And all of a sudden he gets drawn into this strange, almost Lovecraftian event. It doesn't make any sense. This thing burning and not burning and talking to him and these voices. And it's not just, he didn't just see something in the distance that was weird, like a Sasquatch leaping across a meadow. The Sasquatch turned and talked to him. And that's to me, I think when the weird becomes mysterious is when we are interpolated, we're brought into it. Yeah, that's a distinction I think might be worth exploring. But, you know, just think about, and I'll just finish on that. We often hear in philosophy about the hard problem of consciousness, right? It's a hard problem because there's literally no way to pull the rabbit of consciousness out of the hat of material events. Like imagine yourself putting little bits of meat together. At which point do the little bits of meat suddenly start thinking, I'm a little bit of meat. Like it it doesn't make any sense. There's a leap that we can't really account for. But if you put it in those terms, the hard problem of consciousness, it's a little comical because we are conscious. We are consciousness. So it's the hard problem of ourselves. The alternative phrase would be the mystery of consciousness. All of a sudden you feel kind of caught up in that. Oh, like I there's some kind saying. of Yeah, you know, there's a we're going somewhere with this. There's something more to know, even though it's not a rational solution to the problem. There's a, a moral engagement that's involved in the idea of mystery, I think. I confess that the distinction I made between the weird and mystery was a good deal simpler and less philosophical, which is that if everything is weird, nothing is weird. Like the word weird seems to denote an exceptional state of events, some departure from the norm. You know, I sometimes sort of think like, well, everything can't be weird. It's like the Garrison Keillor joke, you know, Lake Guobagon, where all the children are above average. Like it just doesn't work logically, but it does for some reason work logically for me to say that everything is mysterious, that we could use Heraclitus's famous dictum that mm. nature loves to hide. That to me has always been a statement about something observable about nature, certainly observable in my own life, is the way in which things, and when I say nature, I'm not, again, I'm not talking about a, a, an enchanted glade or some special thing. I'm talking about like just the way of things, Dharma. Yeah. Things present a face to you, but that face is always retreating from you. Uh, like the nymph, we're always right? chasing it. Yeah. Like yeah. the nymph. The nymph and reveals it, herself and then conceals herself constantly and drawing you in. Deeper yes. and deeper. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. And that is, to me, something that you can say quite logically about the nature of all experience and everything, all dharmas, everything that we encounter. Whereas if you say that all of these things are weird, we're probably stretching a point. Anyway, that so yeah. as I say, a rather less philosophical point than the one that you made. But. Well, I, I think it's an important point. But then again, there's different orders of the weird. Like some things are commonplace. Some things are not weird. That's true. Some things are eminently knowable, at least practically, in a practical sense. My mind isn't blown every time I, I, you know, I drive my car. It's a commonplace thing. I can rely on it. This world is reliable enough to allow things to become commonplace. We don't live in that hypothetical world that Kant imagines when he's trying to justify our belief in causation, where he says, like, 
if the weather could change on a dime so that it was snowing one minute and then sunny the next and if uh, cinnabar could be as light as a feather in one second and as, as heavy as it is or if it lost its color. I can't remember his analogies. Yeah. It's a famous passage from Kant where he's- Which, it's, which it's, you've read on the show elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, I've read it. I, but the point is that if, if things were just topsy-turvy, if we lived in Alice's Wonderland, you know, yeah, th- there wouldn't be enough consistency for anything to become commonplace, for the world to be trustworthy, for things like science to be possible. We live in a world where the world is trustworthy enough for us to come to call certain things commonplace, even though they might, from the right angle and the right light, show a kind of weird uncanniness, right? They can become commonplace. But that in itself is really weird. It's really weird that we live in a world that's knowable at all, especially if you follow the basic narrative of modern naturalism, which is that we evolved for reasons that have nothing to do with finding out the truth about the universe. We evolved for completely unrelated reasons. And yet we developed mathematics, we developed esoteric traditions, all kinds of ways of engaging with reality at the macrocosmic level. And these methods have paid off time and time and time again, confirming each time that we do have a kind of foothold in this reality. And we can't account for that foothold, you know? Mm. Just give like a chemistry kit to a, a chimp and see what happens. You know, like for some reason, we have access to something that's just more than human. I think that to challenge that is even to challenge it is to affirm it because you can't challenge it without affirming it. Well, it's like the idea of the unreasonable efficacy of mathematics. Right. You know, why is it that mathematics works so well to describe the universe? Yeah. I was thinking about one way in which it makes absolute sense to say that everything is weird or everything is strange, which is in the conditions of psychotic break. Not that I've Mm. had uh, what I think of as a psychotic break, although I don't know. But like, I was thinking about a concept that we've talked about in the show. I think it might have come up right around the time that we did the show with Rodney Asher on Glitch in the Matrix. The book by Lewis Sass called Madness and Modernism which has some really interesting ideas about the world under the aspect of schizophrenia. And I've been reading Custer's book, Philosophy of Madness. I have that. I just got it. Oh, okay. Is it it good? Yeah, Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Covers some of the same ground. There's this idea of the truth-taking stare. Right. A kind of a mood that uh, the psychotic patient experiences at the onset of a schizophrenic episode where the entire world appears as it does in a De Chirico painting, you know, with those empty plazas and you just see ordinary things, a, a fountain and a statue, but everything is charged with some kind of inexpressible strangeness and threat. That's the experience of the truth-taking stare, where you're taking everything in you see everything, and everything looks as it always has, but with this indefinable aura of significance. Intelligence. Intelligence, yeah. 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 And that is a moment in which just very ordinary things can become strange, but in a very sinister register. I mean, and I think that like Zen practice gives us another, perhaps less frightening, <laughs> less dangerous way in which the world can present the same appearance where something very ordinary, a teacup, all of a sudden is just charged with 
a kind of excess or perhaps an emptiness. And perhaps those are two sides of the same thing. But somehow it is ripped away from the skin of conventional meanings. And if you think, as for example, Peter Kingsley thinks, I'm reading Catafalque right now, and I have a copy of his reality at my uh, right hand here while we talk. And he would say pretty much every aspect of our conventional understanding is false. Right. Right. And that our job is to somehow overcome that falseness to a true apprehension of reality. You know, you could say that actually it's our view of the teacup as it normally is with the conventional meanings attached to it, that that is what's weird. And coming to yeah. a true understanding of it, seeing it not in light of that is, in fact, that's a kind of coming to health. That's not seeing it as weird. That's actually a kind of, I don't know. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, so you see how like even talking about things in the ordinary words that we have, weird or not weird, strange or not strange, mysterious or not mysterious, it gets mysterious, fearfully confusing. It does. I love that you mentioned the, this idea of the, what is it, the truth-taking stare, right? Mm. I never had a psychotic breakdown, thank God, but I did have a, a mini one. Uh, in my 20s, I had serious panic disorder for a short time. I guess that's, I'm diagnosing myself. I had panic attacks is all I can say. But one of the first ones, I was staring at the radiator. I think I've brought this up on the show before in my apartment in, in Toronto. And it suddenly came to life in the most sinister and uh, frightening way. And I, I had a, a glimpse of that, that terrible world where it's like things reveal. It is to enter an aesthetic universe in the sense that things become what they are. They, they are no, you can no longer rely on the causal chain that reduces things to just a particular link in an endless chain of cause and effect, which is rationally construed and rationally constrained. Suddenly that radiator was, had just come into the world mm -hmm. along with its history. It didn't matter. It was painted. Somebody, it, it didn't, all that stuff, the, it, its accidents were just aesthetic choices that it made to be there in my life at that moment and to show me how hellish reality really was. That's all I can say. It it had one purpose and it's material history. It's the four causes, you know, the Aristotelian reasons why it was there at that point were the least important part. The only thing that mattered was that it was itself and it was a challenge to me in this weird, frightening way. Well, that's the fifth cause, right? That's the diviner's cause. Exactly. exactly. Not what is it, but like, why is it here now? Yeah. Why, yeah. why is it manifesting in this way to me? At this moment. That question combined with the absolute certainty that it is the most important question. It is yeah. the only question is why yeah. this radiator now, at least that's how the panic manifested itself at first. I don't know if that's what triggered it. I think the panic was already happening when it, when I experienced that. Well, I think that this gets at one side of radical mystery, which it would be very easy for us to try to clean it up. Especially in a religious context, I let off by saying that my whole context for thinking in terms of radical mystery comes from Zen, where it's actually a very orthodox way to think about reality, however odd it might seem in academia, for example. Mm -hmm. But you know, presenting it in a religious context, it would be natural to sort of have it appear, as my editor thought that it appeared, just like, oh, you're talking about like 
a kind of a holiday, something special and redemptive, a, a warm bath that you can slip in to feel better. Kind of better a Walden about. experience. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But the thing is, it could also be absolutely terrifying and unmooring. It, you know, it could be a psychotic break where you are actually seeing something real about the world, but you're overwhelmed by it and completely unable to get the kind of distance from it that your ordinary socialization allows you to. And I can tell you that, like, I am fond of that distance. I am fond of that buffering. There are times where I've had experiences like what you've described, where, you know, I'm staring at something and suddenly that thing takes on a kind of sinister life and it wants something from me. And so, and I slam the door closed mm -hmm. on those moments where I can feel myself being pulled into a vortex here. Mm -hmm. There are times where I suddenly am like, you know, no, I am just going to remain on the level of conventional appearances. And I feel fine about that. Yeah. Again, for the millionth time, I find myself wanting to not romanticize this zone of the weird or radical mystery or whatever we're calling it, because truly engaging with it as radical mystery is like, that's a high stakes way to play the game, bro. Could be dangerous. I agree. I agree. But at the same time, you know, I'm, uh, I totally agree. But I'm reminded now of um, Rudolf Otto's famous dictum there, Mysterium Fascinanza Tremendum. You know, Rudolf Otto was a Protestant theologian who wrote a wonderful book called The Idea of the Holy. We've mentioned it before. It's not a hard read. It's really worth it. It's a wonderful little book. But in it, he develops this idea of, you know, the, the Latin phrase means the fascinating and terrible mystery. So he says that the holy as such, the holy qua holy has a two-pronged experiential dimension. One is fascination. You're drawn to it. And the other is terror, horror. You're repelled yeah. by it repulsed by it. And the thing is that we need ways of managing the terror part of the sacred, but maybe we lack those in our culture. Maybe we lack ways of containing these tremendous forces, you know? Like one of the things I love about Raiders of the Lost Ark is it's one of the films that make that weird aspect of the holy so tangible, so palpable in the film. You can feel that there's something incredibly attractive in the arc and in the powers it contains, but also something really monstrous and really, really scary. You know, when that happened to me with the radiator, I wasn't equipped to stop it. This is since then I learned. And through that experience, I learned how to, I haven't had a panic attack since then, but I had many, many in those few years. And this came at a time where I was really steeped in especially Buddhist books at the time, but a lot of philosophy and thinking and you know, really, really absorbed in my own thoughts. And it, it led to this kind of crisis. And I had to learn how to manage it. And I don't know if I actually learned how to manage it. I think I do. That's the way I, I think of it. But maybe it just went away. <laughs> and it could come back at any time. The point is that sometimes this stuff just blackjacks you, you know, it just comes yeah. out of nowhere. And, uh, that's why like a secular response isn't available in those situations. You just can't rely on, you need some sort of spiritual foundation to be able to traverse those times, I think. I think it's yes. in those times that, that the question of, of religion, and interpret that as you will, it's a broad term, rears its head. Or if religion 
raises your hackles. You can think of spirituality, having a spiritual life, because we're yeah. on the level that we're talking of basically the terms are interchangeable. Yeah, except there's a type of spirituality that I think no, yeah, doesn't, we, we talk, doesn't quite do it. But yes, we talk I, about I that at length in our episode on Osho. And so if people are interested in, in the distinctions we draw, they can listen to that episode. But for the purposes of this conversation now, I think like there's basically some kind of some connection with the more than human. Right. More than human doesn't have to be theistic. There doesn't have to be a God as such, right? But the more than human. Yeah. A good reason to believe that meaning exceeds you, that meaning's not just a chimera of your own mentations. That's why seeing the world as mystery as opposed to just plain weirdness is so useful because mystery contains the perennially offered and perennially withdrawn or, or broken promise of meaning. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it that's keeps well you on the road to meaning and that in itself has a kind of meaning and it allows you to make sense of some pretty dark stuff, I think at least. At least it plays- Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, now that we mentioned religion, Another thing I was thinking about when we were discussing doing this show is just the etymology of the word mystery, because that might be a fun place sure. to go and explore. Um, the word comes from the Greek mysterion, which had a positive meaning, positive in the logical sense. Mysterion means something hidden, a secret yep. doctrine, or literally something hidden in a basket, you know, like something tucked away and waiting to be discovered. Cashed. Whereas in, the, in our own secular age, mystery has a purely negative connotation. Yeah. Mostly it's used, I think, most commonly when we talk about crime, um, you know, yeah. uh, a murder mystery. And so we're talking here about a problem. So it's weird. There's been a, a reversal of the, of the meaning of the word from the positive to the negative, which is also paralleled when we look at the word myth, right? Myth meant right. a kind of positive affirmation about reality at the supernal level, you know? And then finally, myth today means just a false narrative, a, right. a false, false belief. belief. So restoring that positive meaning of mystery is, is, I think, one of the things we're trying to do on this show. just saying that the root of the word mystery is this idea of something hidden. Now, one thing I mentioned in my little essay on Patreon is Dogen's famous line, nothing is hidden. Right. That, in fact, is him quoting somebody. This is in 
this piece of writing called Instructions for the Cook, which is about the obligations of the tenso, the monastery cook, to the community, but also it becomes like a microcosm of Zen practice generally, and it's an important piece, and, and fairly accessible. Actually, it would be a good piece to do on Weird Studies if we ever felt like going back to the Dogen well. That'd be but great. in it, he has this line, nothing is hidden, and at the Zen practice community that I used to be a part of years ago, in the compost shed or a compost bin, there was a little placard that said nothing is hidden <laughs> over it, mm. which is um, kind of great, actually. It's just a reminder in, in the midst of doing yard work that this is the mystery right now. That bunch of cut grass that you just threw on the compost pile, that's the mystery. It's not hidden, right? But that's, <laughs> that's a kind of an interesting thing. It's like you can almost sort of think of that in connection with Heraclitus as nature loves to hide. It is telling us something about the nature of the world that the thing you're after as a Zen practitioner or as a spiritual seeker or religious person or whatever, or even as a scientist, let's just make it secular. I was going to say as a scientist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, because a scientist also is after truth, yeah. after a non-obvious truth, and is also having to come up against a world that in some ways feels mysterious because we don't know everything, but then at the same time also has a feeling of blatancy, like everything is laid out before you. And the scientist might come to the conclusion like, hey, there's no occult mysteries here. It's all stuff that's there waiting for you to figure it out, but it's all right there. And in a certain sense, the scientists and Dogen are at one on that point. Yeah. But the thing is, what Dogen is talking about, the thing that is not mysterious at all, nothing is hidden, is the mystery. It's right there in front of you. <laughs> but like the fundamental question that motivated Dogen was like, if we all have the truth in us, if we are all perfect Buddhas, which from a certain point of view we are, then what is the point of practicing? Why do you need to practice? And I'm certainly not going to try to run down in 25 words or fewer, what Dogen's answer to that question. But basically, that question is the cornerstone to his entire system of thought. And saying nothing is hidden is telling you something quite meaningful about the nature of reality. Whatever it is we're after in practice is right there, but you're not going to get it without practice. Right. You know what I mean? And so one of the things that I mention in this essay is a famous line from one of the Zen patriarchs, Sagan Ishin. And this is quoted in Alan Watts' The Way of Zen as, uh, before I had studied Zen for 30 years, I saw mountains as mountains and waters as waters. When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and waters are not waters. But now that I've got its very substance, I am at rest. For it's just that I see mountains once again as mountains and waters once again, as waters. This has been quoted many, many times. And uh, I looked up on Google to see like all these different interpretations of it, many of them I think of as being wrong. But then I'm going to offer my own interpretation and, uh, and, and it quite possibly it's wrong, which is like, you know, before practice or like when you're not thinking too hard about metaphysics and whatnot, reality just presents itself as like it is what it is. But I think any serious quest into the nature of what is, whether that is a scientific or a religious quest, is going to be actuated by a kind of a dissatisfaction, a feeling of like, no, there's got to be more to it than this, right? Right. Mountains aren't mountains, waters aren't waters. And, you know, in practice, 
you can encounter all kinds of crazy experiences. I actually have one that I might have an anecdote that I might tell in relation to this that I haven't told on the show before. And you can have all kinds of weird visionary experiences, the kind of thing that you were talking about with the the radiator, shit like that starts happening to you all the time, and a strange, sinister side of things that you've never seen before express itself, or perhaps a light-filled and beatific side of things that you've never experienced will shine forth. There are points in your practice where that happens, right? Mm -hmm. But then... There is some point, and I'm not going to try and express it, except to say there is some point beyond that where the world is as it is, but you're not back to square one, where mountains are mountains and waters are waters. Mountains are mountains, motherfucker. Like, there's something about that that is, it's everything. It is the most important thing, and it's not hidden. It's sitting right there in front of your nose, but you're never going to get it without practice. And whatever practice means to you, that could be Zen practice sitting cross-legged, treating that Zafu like it's an egg that you're trying to hatch, or it could be a scientific path that you're on. But when Dogen says nothing is hidden, he's pointing to this fact. It's like the mystery that we're after. There's nothing exotic about it. It's right there. It reminds me of Plato, Plato interpreted, and especially Plotinus, the Neoplatonist philosopher Plotinus, who lived and worked many hundreds of years after Plato died, the doctrine of the undescended soul, which caused a lot of problems for his followers. His idea was that your soul is already in the one. You're already there, but you don't know it. And the mystical practice is a, a practice of disambiguating your always already complete salvation or like unification with the one or whatever. And even in in Plato, if you read Plato from a kind of mystical slant, you can see how he's getting at the very same thing. In fact, when he's trying to understand what justice is, there's the same process that we start in phantasms where we think we know what we're looking at. We think we understand justice. You thought you knew something, but then you start thinking about it, and all of a sudden you don't know what it is anymore. And then eventually you perceive the form of it, and then you come to know justice with a capital J. So it's the same process of starting in a place of assumed familiarity, moving into the strangeness where things become defamiliarized and, and weirded, and then coming back and reaffirming at the end the world that you left, but on a footing that leaves it, that anchors it in mystery as opposed to just being strange or taken for granted and and normal. It's a transcendence of the dichotomy of knowing and not knowing. It's a transcendence of knowledge. It's a gnosis that has nothing to do with knowledge. Like if we construe knowledge as content being downloaded into your head, it's a direct knowledge, right? Plato had all these stages of cognition. It starts with Icasia, I think. It's when you're just seeing images. Then you move through pistis, which is you believe the opinions and that sort of thing. Then you move through dianoia, which is analysis through geometry. And then finally you come to noesis, which is knowledge of the forms. And supposedly there was a fifth mode of knowing for Plato, which we don't know the name of, but I call it gnosis as opposed to noesis. And gnosis would be union with the one, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're unified with the one, you don't ascend into heaven and disappear. You're still there. You know, you're like Paul, right? You're, you're saved, but you're still here. 
And so everything is still the way it was, but somehow everything is kind of transfigured. But you're not in a position of knowledge, like gnosis in the sense of a certain, a kind of like um, discursive knowledge that you've obtained. Yeah. It's like what John Keats called negative capability, the ability to dwell, but really to dwell in mystery without, as he says, the irritable reaching after logic and reason, just living in the mystery and responding to the world spontaneously out of this oneness with the mystery. Yeah. When we see great saints or great mystics and the, the amazing ways in which they could know things about people or respond in the perfect way in a situation to alter the situation permanently, we're getting a sense of what is possible to someone who has achieved that kind of gnosis. And I do believe that's possible. You know, it, it, We have examples of it in, in, in the history of, of religion, for sure. I have an anecdote. I teased this earlier, and I don't know if it exactly fits with this conversation. I thought it might a few minutes ago. Now I'm not so sure, but I'm going to tell you the anecdote anyway. So thinking about what it is to perceive something of things as they are, but like unencumbered by conventional associations and perceptions. Early in my practice as a Zen student, I was very gung-ho about like personal transformation. This is not uncommon. In the Zen world, especially in Soto Zen, it's a little bit of a faux pas to talk about awakening or enlightenment in the very Dogen-y version of Soto Zen, the very strictly Dogen-centered version of Soto Zen. The standard line is there's no such thing as awakening, there's only practice, or practice is awakening. And there are good reasons for that theological position. However, that's by no means the consensus among Zen Buddhists. And likewise, even people who are in practice communities where we're all pretending not to believe in awakening, we still totally believe in awakening and chase after it. That still happens, right? And I was that kind of a guy. I was like pushing very hard. I was practicing hard. And at least for me, not as hard as some people, but you know, I kind of wanted mountains to stop being mountains and waters to stop being waters. I wanted the hidden truth, the, the, you know, basically the occult move that I was trying to force to happen within a Zen framework, which is, there's problems with that. I do not encourage people to do that. And this anecdote might give you a sense why. The danger is that you might actually catch what you're chasing, you know, like a dog chasing a car. What would the dog do if it actually caught the car? What happens if you catch what you're chasing. What if, what if for a moment there, mountains stop being mountains? I'm not saying for, by the way, that I am awakened or some shit. I I'm still don't know what I think about awakening, but I can tell you I've certainly had some odd experiences. And one of them is what in insight meditation, which is sort of the Theravadin tradition, is called the arising and passing away. We've talked about this on the show too. Often when people stumble into this territory, and they don't always do it through meditation or spiritual exercises, it can happen to you in an acid trip or yep. um, or even just like walking around. Daniel Ingram, who's written a lot about this, talks about it happening to him in a dream. But the arising passing away is a much documented, very well-attested phenomenon that Theravadin Buddhists have talked about and analyzed basically forever where you experience all kinds of energetic phenomena, like the rising of the kundalini, you know, you're filled with bliss and joy and energy, and the world appears transformed. You see things 
and a kind of freshness and immediacy. And you feel like you can truly understand what Dogen was talking about when he said nothing is hidden. You know, that you see this mysterious effulgence of things, that things are shining forth, as it were, with their own inner light. And you can perceive it and you realize it was there all along. Nothing is hidden. Mm -hmm. I am a perfect enlightened Buddha. It's easy to get like massive ego inflation when this happens to you. And I'm very proud of myself for (laughs) for having had this special spiritual experience, right? And then I went to the Zen temple and I was sitting for one or two hours there. And in the midst of that, I got in a super deep kind of samadhi state and had what, this is actually not uncommon in such states, with a kind of visionary experience, right? And in a kind of an imaginal realm. We talk about the imaginal as a territory that in a sense is something you were imagining, but in another sense, you're stumbling into a territory that has existed long before you and will exist long after. Something that in a certain sense is permanent, even if it's imaginary. Those kinds of experiences, certainly at this point in my practice, were not uncommon because I was chasing them. So I was meditating and I found myself slipping into that kind of imaginal zone and I'm just like kind of going with it. And in this kind of vision, in this imaginal vision, I am in the company of a bunch of Zen monks, all with shaved heads and the black okesa. And they're not Zen monks that I actually know in real life. They're imaginal Zen monks, right? And they hand me separate pieces of what appears to be a musical instrument, something like a bassoon, but not a bassoon, disassembled. And they hand me these pieces wordlessly. And I am given to understand that I have to put these pieces together and play the musical instrument. And I don't know how to do it, so I try. I fit the pieces together and I blow into it. And the sound that emerges is not a sound, it's an anti-sound. And I can't describe to you how extremely strange this was. Almost like in those movies where they want to give you a sense of an explosion so big, so powerful. Like a nuclear explosion, which is supposedly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that you see the flash and for a second it's completely silent. It was like that. It was like an anti-sound, a vast silence that was, as they say, it was a deafening silence, right? right? And a void. And that void was inexpressibly terrifying and terrible. It was wrongness. It was like wrongness in itself. And I realized Hmm. the terrible mistake I made in presuming that I could assemble this complicated instrument and play it, which if you've been following my anecdote, you will doubtless understand it correctly as a commentary on the nature of that chasing practice, that practice I was engaged in, where I was after mountains no longer being mountains, right? Right. And um, sound no longer being sound, you know? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So it's like, you you, careful what you ask for. Yeah, exactly. And my hubris and think it's like the sorcerer's apprentice. Hey, let me try this. Yeah. Well, you don't know how to put the fucking thing together. You don't know how to do it. You don't know what you're doing, but you're going to blow on it and see what happens. Okay. Well, here's what happens. And I snap too, like my eyes snap open. I'm like stone cold, sober, awake, sitting on the cushion and feeling really freaked out and just sort of, and I'm beginning to whistle past the graveyard and thinking like, oh, that was probably nothing. Then I'm walking home afterwards and everything, it was a beautiful day, beautiful spring day. And yet everything presented itself 
on the one hand, all the houses and streets and cars and everything were all just as they always seemed, but everything imbued with a strange, sinister quality, mm. right? And so I said earlier, you know, that I never had a psychotic break. Eh, I don't know if this counts as a psychotic break. It definitely counts as something like deeply unsettling. Right. Where the world revealed the the flip side of that, like the world revealing itself as effulgent and full of light and and so on. The flip side of that is the world under the aspect of that terrible anti-sound. Right. Empty. Void. Void, like stripped of human meanings, a world that no longer is a fit habitation for a person. And all of a sudden, I'm in that world, and I don't know how to unplay that note. Yeah. That was fucking terrifying. And I have to say, it went went through what uh, the Theravadins would call the Dukkha Nanas, the knowledges of suffering. Right. Not the only time either, but like, that's... One reason why I'm always full of warnings that shit ain't a game. Radical mystery is not uh, necessarily a consoling, a pleasant thought. The nature of reality as it appears under the aspect of it, uh, what I believe is its true face under the aspect of mystery, can be a terrifying place. In itself, it is neither terrifying nor not terrifying, but the question is, how are you going to deal with it? It's not a problem, it's a mystery. Once the mystery gets its cause in you, you cannot subtract yourself from it. You can't escape it. This is Jonah, right? That's the story mm. of Jonah. He is told to go to Nineveh and he says to God, ah, fuck off. I don't feel like it. And, um, and fuck off. And, <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> I think that, that Canadian inflection. Yeah. Fuck so, off. <laughs> so he tries to get away and we all know the story. He gets swallowed by a giant fish and he gets taken there and he descends into that dark night. Once you've been picked out, you have to do something about it. It's not just something you can avoid. Yeah. This is why I, as much as I agree with our warnings and admonitions and like careful, it's, it just kind of grabs people. And Yeah. What's the alternative? Right. Yeah. Just like I choose to live a comfortable and mediocre life. Maybe Mr. Rogers could do that, but. No, I'm not hearing a fucking word against Mr. Rogers. That guy is a bodhisattva. <laughs> no. Well, that, well I, I agree. Well, that means even Mr. Rogers saw the void from time to time. I am sure that he saw. I think that is where his <laughs> infinite kindness and compassion must have come from. Exactly. Kindness and compassion. Where is it going to come from? Is it going to come from your own fucking human will? I want to be a nice person. If you're Canadian, it'll be legislated. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pretty slender read yeah. to base a system of moral human conduct on, right? Right. Like, Are, do you really deserve to be compassionate? You know, like, <laughs> like some, ask yourself that's an the interesting question, question, you know? We are all facing the same mystery. We are all Adam before Eve even came. We are all that first human who raises their head and looks at creation and hears a voice and can't make out what the voice is saying. And yep. we're all in that situation. This idea that we've had um, all these thousands of years of culture and accumulated knowledge and science and all, all that stuff is nothing. That's nothing that won't save you when the radiator decides to show itself to you. 
all that yeah. shit will just disappear like a cheap big top being ripped up from <laughs> over you. And you just look up and look at like in that poem, you just look up and see the void. It's there, but it's not all that there is. There's something else too, or there's another aspect to it, or there's a light in it, or there's a, there's a, another light, you know, the light that we were talking about last time, the light that existed before the sun and the star and the moons were hung in the sky. There was still a light. That's the first word. That's the first line. Let there be light. What is that light? It's a light of, it's a dark light. It's a light that is at one with the darkness. There's some kind of way of transcending this. And we're all being called to do it at some point or another. We all face it. In some ways, some people may face it in a more dramatic way than others. But the point is, we're all inhabiting this mystery. The mystery always comes down to how can I, how must I respond? What ought I to do? It's when Moses sees the burning bush and, you know, the voice says, you will do this, that, and the other thing. You will lead my people out of, out of Egypt. And he says, I don't know how to do it. And the voice says, I will help you. And he says, he basically just has to completely perform an act of kenesis, of like self-emptying. He empties himself and gives himself over to the mystery. And then shit starts happening. The great thing about Moses is he becomes a kind of paradigmatic wizard, right? He's got the staff and everything. You know, he's like Mm -hmm. parting the sea and calling down insect plagues and doing all this wizardly shit. He's got the beard and sometimes horns. Like Moses is a wizard. But the difference between Moses and the wizards of Pharaoh, you know, the court wizards who he kind of gets into a kind of magical duel with is that. Whereas the court wizards are relying on their own ability to tap into the causal forces, the deep causal forces of this world, Moses doesn't even know what the trick will be. He just goes, okay, now, and then something happens. He doesn't know what it is. When uh, the spirit of God comes down and kills all the firstborn in Egypt, you know, to encourage Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave, Moses himself is struck with horror. But it's his magic. But that's the difference between sacred magic and, and sorcery that we read about in, in meditations on the tarot. It's like once you let go of your – I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about. I'm talking from, you know, once – An occupational the, hazard. The idea is that once you let go of the need to know, the need to control and give yourself over to the mystery, the void transforms. And I've, I've experienced that firsthand in a psychedelic experience that I had, very intense one. I'll avoid the details where I experienced uh, the, the same void that you experienced with the flute, with the strange Lovecraftian flute that the monks gave you. I love that, by the way. It's such a, it's so Lagotian or something that the way you described it. Um, the only way I can explain, I was in an ocean of serpents, an ocean of black vipers. And I, actually came to the point where I thought I'm going to die. I, this is it. I'm going to die. And there's nothing, there's nothing waiting for me. It's over. And it was at the moment of death that suddenly there was this weird enantiodromia, this weird transformation. All of a sudden the, the, the vipers turned into something altogether different. And there was, it was the same thing in the experience. I knew I was in the same place looking at the same thing, but seeing it completely differently. Yep. C.S. Lewis has this great line. It's like the fires of hell. What is it? Basically, he's saying that the fire of hell is the love of God, but it's the the person refuses, denies it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is kind of getting back to something that I think 
Kingsley's on about in Catafalque. And something we've encountered on the show repeatedly, it's just like, okay, so I just told a story that's like how you can blow your own mind and have to pick up the pieces and, uh, as they say, integrate your experiences into everyday life. Right. Um, and uh, I feel like a lot of my practice nowadays is, is is exactly that, just integration. I'm not chasing weird shit. I'm trying to figure out how to... Put the flute together. Ha- Properly. Put, I am put, trying to figure out how to put that flute together properly. Yes, that is exactly, exactly right. Yeah. The thing is, an authentic attempt to measure up to radical mystery means putting yourself in the way of both the effulgence of all things and the blankness of all things. Fullness and emptiness, and something that we've both been saying in our personal experiences and how we're thinking through it, is that the thing itself is beyond such, like, is it good? Is it bad? Like, yeah, Yeah. yeah, like how you are is going to determine that, right? Yeah. And you can't take yourself out of the picture. No. And so the only way to do this all-important thing is to put yourself in the way of danger. And it ain't danger if there's guardrails. Mm. You know, that's the thing. It's just sort of like, so sometimes people will say like, oh, so you're telling us we shouldn't engage in spiritual practice. And it's like, no, no, no. You should know that it's dangerous. Right. Oh, so I shouldn't do it. No, no, no. Just because something's dangerous doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. But at the same time, like, as I've said before, as an educator, I feel like my moral obligation is to warn people Okay, so how to put this? We talked about this actually in the episode with Jeremy Johnson, but that conversation went so long, we split this off into a separate, like a Patreon extra. We were talking about ancient, what do you call it? Like initiation rituals. Right. Where you might be buried alive for several days or like entombed, put in the bottom of a well or something. Right. And then at the end of three days or something, somebody comes and gets you and it's a transformative experience. And it's transformative because you're afraid and alone and you don't know what's going to happen. And then you are retrieved from that condition of unknowing. And that's like a tremendous breakthrough. It's a, it's an initiation. Right. But the thing is that the full initiation can only happen if you're scared. Right. And if you know, okay, if somebody explains to you, okay, well, this is the initiation, and in three days an attendant will come and get you, in the time between now and then, we'll make sure that there's water and bread. It's not great, fair, but you won't die of thirst. And You can always opt out. (laughs) You can always opt out. There's a red button here. Press the button and somebody will come. You know, like, if we were trying to do that nowadays, like, it would be illegal not to do it in that fashion with plenty of as it were, safe words with a way out, with escape hatches. There has to be. Of course. But if you do that, you might be unnerved, or you might be bored, or you might it might be a taxing experience, but it's not going to be the full-on experience of like what these ancient mystery cults were after, which is like having you die while you're still alive. Yeah. To have you really come face-to-face with the existential ultimates of death and non-being and what is being anyway. And the only way you're going to come up against that is that initiatory experience of being buried alive for several days, right? 
Mm-hmm. And actually, in that conversation we had with Jeremy, I talked about a friend of my son's. Oh, God. Yeah. Who was, in, as a freshman in college, went on a spelunking group that was not being run in a safe way. They weren't counting heads. And so at the end, this young man dawdled a bit, and everybody else left the cave and then closed the cave because there's this huge metal grate that they would put over the cave mouth to keep locals from wandering in and getting lost or getting stuck in the cave. These caves are super dangerous. But in any event, it was way the hell in the middle of nowhere. There was actually like a little aperture he could yell out of, but there was no one to yell to. Oh my God. And it was over by a freeway. And so the freeway noise would completely disguise his voice. So like there was no way he could call out to anybody. And he didn't tell anybody where he was going. So nobody could kind of figure out like one day he was just gone. There were several days where nobody knew what happened. And finally, somebody found his muddy pants in the back of their car. And they were like, that's weird. Where'd those come from? And and that got people thinking like, wait a minute, did he go on this spelunking trip? Anyway, so that was the setup. But the thing is, he was locked in that cave for three days. For three days. Jesus Christ. And yeah. he had to fight a snake. Talk about initiatory. Yeah. Um, he had a power bar wrapper that he was using to like scrape water condensation from the wall so he didn't completely dehydrate. There was no guardrails here, no safe words, no nothing. And then once people figured it out, he was rescued. I mean, he's had some talk about um, integration. He has had to integrate that experience in his life, as you can well imagine. It was a deeply traumatic experience. How old was he? Like 19? Yeah. Shit. And so, and I, or 18, and I don't know if he had some kind of initiatory experience. I, I, from what I can tell, pretty goddamn traumatic experience. And that's the point. Like what he had accidentally was an old school initiatory experience. Yeah. The buried alive thing without the guardrails, without the protocols. Yeah. Where right. you come face to face with your death. And in a sense, that is why it, it doesn't look like it. Zen practice or any kind of serious, real spiritual practice is exactly the same. Yeah. It is a practice of coming face to face with the existential ultimates, with your death, with what things mean in light of death. Even the most mundane thing, like this cup I'm holding in my hand, what does this thing mean? Yeah. Knowing the reality of death and the eventual extinction of all these thoughts and feelings. And to come face to face with that, really come face to face with that. If there are guardrails, I question how close you're really coming. And so like, we find ourselves in a situation where like the one thing needful, the most important thing that you can do in your life to become a person. If you really want to do it, you have to do it in the spirit of no guardrails. That's dangerous i'm yeah. talking about like this experience with the the uh, legatian flute and you know that happened years and years ago and i'm a different man now and i'm recollecting the experience in tranquility and we say well it turned out for you it could easily not have yeah i could have just gone insane i could have been irrecoverably damaged by that and indeed in some ways i have been irrecoverably damaged by spiritual practice. It's just that that is also, in a certain sense, the good news, right? Yeah. But like, this is why I say, keep saying, like, it, it's this central ambivalence. This practice 
that gets us on the path of radical mystery is both the most important thing and also the most dangerous thing. And somehow we have to live in the unreconciled opposition of these two things. And there's more good news because it is, uh, I guess you could bemoan the fact that today the practices that would give us that sort of experience are, are absolutely illegal. Unless, as you say, you engage in a like a spiritual practice rigorously and you yourself put yourself in that situation. No one can stop you from putting yourself in a no guardrail situation. And I don't mean that you should do something reckless or dangerous. Actively courting yeah. danger. No, that's absolutely not the not. point. The point is to come face to face with the reality of death. And guess what? You're already in that situation right now, sitting there listening to this podcast. Yep. You're sitting in the cave. There are no guardrails. There are no safeguards. It's happening. It's going to happen. You're in it. Maybe some of us don't realize it until after the moment has passed and we're dead, but we're all having an initiatory experience. This is what's going on. This is, this is what it means to live in radical mystery. It's to be transformed, to be born to something, and to die to oneself. This is it. Stop right now listening to this podcast, it's about to end. In fact, I suspect that the music bed is coming up under my voice. And I just want you to reflect right now. This is it. You, with your headphones on, and your phone, wherever you are, this is it. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>